Let's pray. God, you are, through Christ, our one defense. Jesus is our righteousness. Uh, without him, we would be doomed. And with him, we have it all. We, ha- we have all of your grace and, and all of your forgiveness and your mercy through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we just sing your praises and we just thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading from there in just a couple minutes. Probably many of you, most of you, I grew up in church learning a little song in children's church or Sunday school that goes kind of like this. It goes, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Do you know the song? You hold, and they always made you hold up your finger like this, like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. All right? And there were other verses that went with it. Uh, verses like, all around the neighborhood, I'm going to let it shine. Right? And then there was, hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine, right? You know the song. There's more. Uh, Don't let Satan it out, right? So we learned this little song about this little light of mine. That song is based on Jesus's words in Matthew 5 that go like this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to uh, your Father who is in heaven. And and of course, that, that light that we're talking about is the light of Christ in the heart of a believer, right? It's it's the visible, illuminating work of Christ as he transforms the heart of a believer into the reflection of himself. And so that light that we're talking about is the light of Jesus Christ that we shine into the world. In our text this morning, in 1 Peter, uh, Peter's going to take up those words of Jesus and he's going to apply them to persecuted Christians. So 1 Peter, of course, is written to Christians who are on the run, uh, Christians who are being scattered for their faith, being marginalized. Some of them are maybe even dying as they're being attacked for their faith. And just as a reminder to you, uh, there is a reason why we've chosen to study this book of 1 Peter. We're coming back to it now after taking a little break from Easter. But there's a reason why we're studying this book. And, and I don't want to be labeled necessarily as a, as a prophet of doom. Uh, but the reality is, is that Christian persecution in the United States feels like a train barreling down the tracks toward us. This coming July 4th, uh, we will have enjoyed... 245 years of religious freedom in the United States. And that has been a huge blessing, and that has been a specific grace of God to us. But I fear that that blessing and that grace is nearing its end. 
the United States is quickly be, uh, moving toward the peril of many other countries that have gone before us who now, if you look at some of those uh, other countries, once experienced a level uh, of Christian freedom, but today have almost none of those privileges and in some of those countries now uh, face severe persecution and outright hostility toward Christianity. So I think we need to be prepared for that. I think we need to be ready for that. We need to understand what it takes to survive in an environment like that. And not just survive, but I think actually thrive. And as bad as that can sound and as awful as that may be as it's coming toward us, let me offer to you a corresponding and equal truth. Never has the Christian church ever had so much opportunity. Never has the Christian church had so much opportunity. It is all around us. This is not the time for us to shrink back in fear. This is not the time for us to withdraw. It's not the time for us to draw the blinds and go into hiding. You have something that the world needs right now. You have Jesus. You have the king of the world. You have the savior of the world. So let's not throw ourselves a pity party, uh, but instead let's learn how to steward this light that we've been given so that with confidence and with boldness, we can go into what may be some crazy and uncertain times, okay? So how do we do that? How do we move with boldness and confidence when persecution is coming? Well, here's one idea. We could just go out and we could go pick it down on downtown Sarasota. We could all walk around with our signs. We could yell at people coming by. Tell them how much we hate them for hating us, for being Christians. And tell them they're all going to go to hell. We could, we could go do that. We could yell. We could get out all of our frustration, all of our hatred. That's one thing we could do. Or we could say, yeah, well, that might not work. So you know what? Let's just go full in, full bore politics. Let's just, get, let's just go all into that. Let's, let's try to pass all the Christian laws we can, and we'll make them be like us. We'll make him be like Christians. That's one thing that we could do. Or if that doesn't work, picketing doesn't work, politics doesn't work, well, you know, at least what we could do, we could gather up all of our guns, we could gather up all of our ammo, and if they dare step on, prop, on my property for trying to take my faith, I'll just blow the brains out. Is there another way? Is there a place for protests? Is there a place for politics? Is there a place for defense? Perhaps a case could be made. But I think Scripture gives us a far superior answer to all of those options. Because Scripture offers us an answer about not only how to survive, but how to thrive in a hostile environment. And not only survive and thrive, but actually how to multiply in a hostile environment. Persecution has always 
served to make the church stronger and bigger. And I have no doubt it's going to do the same now. So I think when persecution comes, uh, we should welcome it, not spurn it. And I think this is the question that Peter is trying to answer for us in our text this morning. How do I let my little light shine in such a way that Satan can't poof it out and it results in that light actually spreading to more people who need Jesus? You want to know how that works? Come along with me. Let's find out. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, go down to verse 11. We are at a turning point in the book of Peter, all right? Up until now, uh, all of 1 Peter, Peter has been laying this theological basis for us about what it means to be part of the Christian community. He's talked about our faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about, he's talked about what it means to be a new people for God. I'm not going to go back and rehash all that. Uh, you can go back. All of our sermons are online on, on our webpage if you want to go back and review it. But when you get to chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter takes a turn. He is now going to begin outlining for us practical ways of how we live out our Christian faith under persecution, especially in the face of unbelief. Okay, so everything before built the basis for now the practical understanding. And verses 10, excuse me, verses 11 and 12 this morning uh, give us some foundational truths that we're going to need to know how to work our way through the rest of his book, okay? So follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I love these two verses. Notice how Peter starts off by calling them the beloved. That's He could have picked different words. He could have said friends. He could have said co-laborers. He could have said fellow church members. But instead, he uses the word beloved. At the root of that word is the word agape. It is a godlike, self-sacrificial, supernatural kind of love. And I think Peter uses this word intentionally to remind us of two things. Number one, God loves you very much. And whenever persecution comes, whatever persecution you're facing, whatever troubles coming to you because of your faith, God has not forgotten about you. You are his beloved. You are always on the mind of God. Secondly, Peter says, as your leader, as your under-shepherd, as as the pastor of your church, he says, I love you in the same way. 
you are my beloved. No true leader of the church domineers over the church. In fact, later in chapter 5, Peter's going to say, if that is a characteristic of, of a guy, he's not qualified to be a leader in the church. A, a leader of the church doesn't domineer the flock. He loves the flock. He, he cares for the flock. And so, so Peter says, to the beloved, God's beloved and my beloved, he comes along and he says, listen, verse 11, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. Now, that's not the first time he's used those kinds of words to describe the people in this church, even in this letter. Uh, Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter had addressed his letter to the elect exiles, and later in verse 17, he talks about the time of their exile. If if you go back and you read Peter's uh, books, watch for places where he repeats himself. Peter likes to remind us, and I'm glad he does because we're quick to forget. Peter says, don't forget you are a sojourner and you are an exile. This is not your home. What do you mean it's not my home? I've got my little 10 acres over here. I've got my kids over here in this school. I've got my business over here. I'm settled. This, this feels like my home. And Peter says, but it's not your home. You're a sojourner and you're an exile. All of this stuff, it's going to burn. You're just a steward. That's what you are. This isn't your ultimate home. And if you think this is your ultimate home, it's not going to go very well for you because you need to be looking forward to a heavenly home, a home where there's no pain and there's no corruption and, and there's no tears. That's our real home. We're just passing through this earth. That's what a sojourner is. Uh, it's a temporary resident. An exile is similar. It, an exile uh, is a person who's residing in a place that's not their homeland. Now, think about this. Here's the deal with sojourners and exiles. They stand out. Why? Because sojourners and exiles have a different language. They have different customs. They live differently. And sometimes it gets in the way of the the natives and sometimes it it makes a big mess and, and the natives get kind of agitated with them. Think about in your own life, somebody who's here uh, as a sojourner or an exile, somebody who's not native here, like somebody from China or Russia or Mexico or Ohio. Think about those people. Guess what? They don't know how to drive here. Right? And we say those dumb northerners, those dumb foreigners, they need to go back home. By the way, to all of our northern friends uh, who come here in the winter, we love you. Uh, we love you. You just don't know how to drive. But, but I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We love you, except when you drive. Uh, but we love you. Sojourners and exiles stand out because their culture and their way of living is not the norm 
for the culture and the place where they're currently residing. And so the natives of the culture look on the sojourners and exiles with suspicion or with disdain or sometimes with outright hatred. So think about this in the way that Peter is applying this to you and I as Christians. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are sojourners and exiles. Our Christian culture, our Christian way of living, our Christian actions, our belief about Jesus is not the norm for the place where we're currently residing. Satan is the ruler of this world, and his culture and his way of living stands in direct opposition to us. And because the world is under his influence, when you and I come along as Christian sojourners and exiles, the native residents of Satan's kingdom look on us with suspicion or disdain and sometimes outright hatred. Are you tracking with me? Do you understand what what he's talking about here? So what are you going to do about that? Peter says, I'm going to tell you what to do about that. I'm going to start off, Peter says, in these two verses by giving you two fundamental truths that you have to get down if you're going to survive and thrive and multiply in this kind of environment. Number one, verse 11 is this, you need to pay attention to your soul. And number two, which comes in verse 12, you need to keep your conduct honorable. Pay attention to your soul Keep your conduct honorable. So let's take them in that order. Uh, Number one, Peter says, I urge you, I beg of you, I plead with you, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Pay attention to your soul. Now, Some of you, if you have a different Bible translation in front of you, you have a different word there for the word passion. Some of your translations will say things like desires or uh, maybe even lusts. A passion or a desire in Scripture is something that I want. Now, a passion and a desire in and of itself may not be sinful. Let me give you an example. I I have a desire for money. I I need money to be able to feed my family, to be able to pay my bills. Occasionally, maybe I can go on a family vacation. I have a desire uh, for money. That in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. But it can become sinful when I attempt to satisfy that desire with anything that is contrary to God's word. So, if I desire money to the point that I rob a bank, that desire has now become sinful. You see how that works? If I desire money to the point that I harass, intimidate, threaten or swindle someone so that I can get the absolute best deal possible, then my desire for money 
not coming from a heart of generosity or kindness or consideration, may have become sinful. See how that works? Let me give you another example. I desire that when I put my children into bed at night, that they stay in bed. It's my desire. It's a good desire. Because I know that for the next hour, I'm going to get some peace and quiet and tranquility. But I also know that that desire can turn sinful very, very quickly when one of my kids comes out of the room and I come out of my lazy boy and uttering obscenities under my breath, I charge toward that kid to put them back in bed. What was a good desire can become sinful And I would argue the Bible would use words like it has become idolatrous in my heart. I want it so badly I was willing to do something that didn't please God. How do you know when your desire or your passion has become sinful? I think you can answer two questions and know. Number one, am I willing to sin to get my desire? Or am I willing to sin if I don't get my desire? If either answer to those questions is yes, then my desire has become idolatrous and it has become sinful. Let me give you one more real-life example so you can see how this plays out. As a married man, I desire sexual fulfillment. That is God-given and that is a grace in my life. But if I seek... To fulfill that desire with anything outside of God-ordained marriage, if I chase after pornography, if I chase after adultery, if I chase after, after lust toward other people, I am sinning because I am trying to fulfill that desire with something that runs counter to God's word. God wants me to remain true to my marriage vows. So Peter throws out this command here where he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. Why, Peter? Well, he answers the question, because they wage war against your soul. Two things will happen if you keep pursuing the passions of your flesh. First, they will make you spiritually weak and ineffective. If you pursue the the passions of your flesh, they will begin to tear you down on the inside. You won't notice it right away. It's a slow fade, but over time, persistent refusal to abstain from the passions of your flesh will make you largely ineffective in your Christian witness. That's just how they work. You begin to look at life through a distorted lens and you become an angry person. You become a controlling person. You become a slanderous person. You become a drunk person. You became a lustful person, a jealous person, a divisive person, a worried person, an anxious person. All of the works of the flesh that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5 are at war with your soul when you continue to give in to those things. So they make you weak and ineffective. And secondly, if you don't abstain from the passions of the flesh, get ready because eventually you'll act out on them. 
what started as a thought will eventually become an action. That's why James says in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There it is. It's the thought, the desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What is the solution? The solution is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone can rescue you from your sin and supply you with the power that you need to do war with your flesh. It is Jesus who gives you the power. It was Jesus who died to make sin powerless in your life, but it it starts with a relationship with him. And then it's taking that power of Jesus and applying it in your life. You can't just let go and let God. That's just not how it works. It is taking his power and charging ahead, putting it to work in your life. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a tension there. Who's working out your salvation? You or God? Yes. It's both of you. You're working out your salvation, but it is God who's working in you. It is the power of Jesus that you're putting into effect in your life as you abstain and battle against the passions of your flesh. So here's my challenge for you. What desire or passion in your life is winning the war against your soul? Where do you need to repent and put on Christ? Where do you need to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What desire or passion in your life is winning the war against your soul? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. So the first fundamental truth that Peter gives to us about living as a sojourner in exile is pay attention to your soul. And then secondly, he says, keep your conduct honorable. That's verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, think about that for a moment. Implied in that statement is that you are going to be out and among Gentiles, right? You're going to be out and among unbelievers. Don't just hole up in your house. Don't form some little commune or some little cult. You're going to be out and among them. That's part of living as a sojourner and an exile. But as a Christian, know something about your life. You are living in a glass house. Every unbeliever out there is watching your conduct. They're watching your deeds. They're they're listening to your words. You are constantly being evaluated by non-Christians. Why is that the case? Because non-Christians want to see if you're going to actually live up to what you profess. 
and non-Christians are looking for any excuse to dismiss your Christianity and say, if that's what Christianity is all about, they talk a big talk, then look how they live. I don't want anything to do with that. So if your life is spent pursuing the passions of your flesh and you begin living that out and you become known as the biggest cheat on your street or the biggest flirt at your workplace or the laziest student at your school, non-Christians are going to look on you with disgust. And they're going to say, they say they're better, but just look at them. But conversely, if if you are living for the Lord, if your conduct is honorable, if it is fitting, if it is commendable, when they come along to insult you or speak evil against you because you don't go along with the gods of their world, they're not going to have much to stand on because your life is virtuous. Your life is commendable. That's what you want to happen. They're going to speak evil against you. You can't stop that. But what you want is that when they speak evil, they really don't have a leg to stand on because they look at your life and it is right there with Christ. If you've never heard the testimony of a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, I would highly encourage you to look her up online and listen to her story. Amazing story. Mrs. Butterfield, by worldly standards, was living a wonderful life. She was a tenured professor uh, at an esteemed university, and she really wanted to make a difference uh, in the world, and she invested a ton of effort in her career, in her community, and in her students. Ms. Butterfield was an avowed lesbian. She owned two homes with her partner, and they hosted students in their homes who were interested in also making a a difference in the world. And as she gives her testimony, she talks about how uh, she decided to write a book about the problem of Christianity. She saw Christianity as not only troubling, but downright damaging uh, when it came to its ethical codes of marriage and sexuality. But, as a good, tenured professor does, uh, she wanted to go to the source for her book material. And so she contacted a local pastor and asked if she could meet with him. Now, her goal in going to him was to hear firsthand about Christianity and their beliefs so she could show how bad it really was and how wrong their God was that they followed. Well, her world was turned upside down. She said that the pastor and his wife were two of the kindest people that she had ever encountered. They invited her over for dinner. They gently, patiently listened to her questions. She said they never raised their voices at her or she expected them to stick their finger in her face. They they never did that. They didn't treat her like an enemy. And over the course of two years, two years, 
every week, this pastor and his wife would have Rosaria Butterfield to their home to talk about their faith. And over that two years, as research for her book, she was reading the Bible, she was considering what the pastor was saying, and over that two years, she became convinced that Christianity was real. She gave her life to Christ. She repented of her sins. She broke off the relationship with her partner. And today, she travels around the country telling her story about how the good deeds, the loving kindness of Christians opened a door for her to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can read her story. She ultimately did write a book, but the book she ended up writing was a book titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And that book has become the catalyst for greater hospitality. What she intended was to smear. What she found was a savior. What she set out to attack she ended up finding redemption. She was motivated by hate. She was confronted with love. What Peter has in mind here in verse 12 is not just a survival mentality. What he has in mind here is an evangelistic outcome to right living by Christians. Look at the end of the verse. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's not talking, when he says the day of visitation, he's not talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about there is the day of visitation when God shows up at that unbeliever's heart and through the good conduct of Christians, he presents himself as Savior. And on that day, they believe in Jesus Christ and they give him glory for his ability to save sinners. And when unbelievers are visited by God in that sense, they glorify him. What facilitated that introduction? It was the good conduct of Christians determined to live uprightly for Jesus in a world that adamantly opposes him. So let me just challenge you one more time. Does your conduct among the Gentiles attract them to Jesus? Or does it give them more ammunition to continue their persecution? Does your living as a sojourner and an exile attract people to Jesus Christ and give living proof that he's real? Or does it give them another reason for why they never want to join you? Let your conduct be so upstanding that they want to know what in the world makes the difference with you so that you have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and that they see that your Jesus is real. And when they hear about your Lord, that they would have the opportunity to glorify him when God visits their heart. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, 
I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That's what Peter wants for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. God, I think we understand that we are sojourners and exiles. At least mentally, we understand that. But it's so easy to get settled into this world. It's so easy to live in this environment and forget that we're different. And when the persecution comes, it becomes far more obvious So when that persecution comes, God, help us to let our little light shine. Help us to keep watch over our soul and to keep our conduct honorable before the Gentiles. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.